The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 81, okay, which says, To the chief musician on an instrument of Gath, a psalm of Asaph. Sing aloud to God our strength. Make a joyful shout to the God of Jacob. Raise a song and strike the timbrel, the pleasant harp, the lute. Blow the trumpet at the time of the new moon, at the full moon on our solemn feast day. For this is a statute for Israel, a law for the God of Jacob. This he established in Joseph as a testimony. When he went throughout the land of Egypt, where I heard a language I did not understand, I removed the shoulder from the burden. I removed his shoulder from the burden. His hands were freed from the baskets. You called in trouble and I delivered you. I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah, Selah. Hear, O my people, and I will admonish you. O Israel, if you will listen to me, there shall be no foreign God among you, nor shall you worship any foreign God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. Oh, that my people would listen to me that Israel would walk in my ways. I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. The haters of the Lord would pretend submission to him, but their fate would endure forever. He would have fed them also with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. I would have satisfied you. <sighs> Mournful words. And it's going on to this day. Our sermon today is from Numbers 5, it's verses 11 through 31, it's the rest of the chapter. This is entitled, The Holy Polygraph. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, when a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there is no witness against her, nor was she caught, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand over the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man is lame with you and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband is laying with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, 
the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. Then may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen. So be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. Then he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as a memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully towards her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord. Then the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. I have a friend, Tom, who is a police officer out in Point Roberts, Washington. He's been itching for me to get to today's passage. Being a cop, he's obviously aware of folks who will lie, even when it's pretty obvious the truth is already evident. He also is surely aware of those who can convincingly lie with such a straight face that nobody could ever tell that they were lying. And then, he's surely seen a lot of people who have been accused of wrongdoing, but who are actually innocent. Seen that this week a lot, haven't we? One of the tools we use for this type of thing, although not legally admissible in court, is the polygraph test. He's the one who, reading this passage, equated its contents to a holy polygraph. And he's been wanting to know what it is picturing, if anything. When he emailed me, he used the term holy polygraph. And so he saved me the trouble of trying to think up a name for the sermon. There are times where, whether you believe it or not, choosing a name for the sermon is as hard as anything else in its preparation. Really, it's true. If you don't believe me, I'll take a lie detect. Never mind. <laughs> but it is true. As far as what this passage is picturing, I'd never given it much thought. But, like everything, the words used begin to shed light on the matter. Why an earthen vessel? Why holy water? Why uncovering the head? It is things like this that begin to develop a picture for us to see. Our text verse comes from the book of Hebrews. It's chapter 2, verse 13. Here I am and the children whom God has given me. The passage today concerns feelings of jealousy in a husband towards his possibly unfaithful wife. That seems to be the main idea of the account. But the penalty for the wife is what bears attention. In Israel, the penalty for adultery was, does anybody know? Stoning. Stoning, that's right. However, here the penalty speaks of things which seem rather odd. Why would her thigh rot and her belly swell? Although not nearly a literal translation, the intent is well stated in the Christian Standard Bible. They translated it, her belly will swell and her womb will shrivel. We'll explain why the difference when we get there, but for now, it's good to understand that it is the womb which is drawing the attention in the penalty phase of this rite. That really becomes evident when one gets to verse 28. The faithful wife is said to be free from the curse and able to bear children. What is that meaning to show us? For now, I'll leave you with a warning to pass on to others. 
be careful when you read books on theology and be careful who you believe in whatever church you decide to visit or attend. The scholars at Cambridge, sounds very high and lofty, doesn't it? They all got PhDs in theology. They must be great guys. The scholars at Cambridge did their absolute best on this account to degrade the Bible into a bunch of myths and superstitions. To them, reading a passage like this is no different than reading a book on spells and incantations by Alditha Teach. The whole thing to them is an exercise in debating what verse was inserted into the Bible by which ancient Hebrew author. They reject that the Lord directed Moses to write these words. They reject that they actually bear the ability to bring a curse upon the adulterous wife. And it seems that apart from trying to look intelligent by making the Bible look stupid, their only objective in writing a commentary is to weaken your faith in the truth of the word. Maybe they are somehow pictured in the verses of this passage. Maybe so. One thing is for sure. This is God's word. And it points to real truths concerning Jesus Christ. It's all to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have four thoughts for you today. It'll go very quickly. It's a lot of verses, but it will go quickly. The first is a spirit of jealousy. It's verses 11 through 15. Verse 11, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the words now introduce the third main section of chapter five. The first verses one through four spoke of maintaining purity in the camp by putting out lepers and others who were defiled. The second, which is verses five through 10, referred to the need for confession and restitution for unfaithfulness against the Lord. Now, a third section is brought in, which will continue to the end of the chapter, beginning with the words of verse 12. Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, the first section said to command the children of Israel. Something needed to be done, and it was commanded to be so. The second section said to speak to the children of Israel. It was a conditional thing. If something came about, then the Lord gave directions concerning what to do about it. This section again says to speak to them. It again concerns a conditional thing. If what I now submit comes about, then here is what you are to do about it. And that is, verse 12 continues, if any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him. The passage, like the first two, deals with a type of defilement. In this case, it is suspected defilement of a woman who has been unfaithful to her husband. In this, a new word is introduced, sata. It will be found four times in this chapter and twice in the book of Proverbs. It signifies turning away, and it is always used in regards to the faithfulness or unfaithfulness of an individual. Verse 13, and a man lies with her carnally. Two similar words are used here, shachav, meaning to lie down, and shekevah, meaning an emission of zerah, or seed. The intent of the words leaves absolutely no doubt. The wife lays with a man in a carnal manner. However, though speaking of it as actually having occurred, for the husband, it is only an occurrence in the mind at this point through suspicion. Verse 13 continues, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband. The husband at this point is suspicious of her unfaithfulness. Every time I practice this sermon over the past couple of weeks, the song Suspicious Minds by Elvis oh, Presley came to mind. Yeah. I, I could not get it out of my head, and here it is in my head right now. <laughs> However, there is no actual witness to the matter. That's why he's got a suspicious mind. The truth of the matter is veiled from his eyes, as the Hebrew word signifies. Verse 13 continues, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself. The woman has done the thing she is suspected of having done. 
and thus defiled herself. It is the same word used in verse 3 concerning those who needed to be put outside of the camp, lest they defile it. She has committed the act, but there is no proof to the fact. Despite continuing to speak of it as a surety, the woman is still only suspected of the act. Verse 13 continues, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught. Again, and in a different way, it is considered as if the thing has happened. But there is no way of substantiating that it occurred. The wording has been presented in several ways to ensure that there is no doubt that there remains complete doubt. If there was actually no doubt, the punishment would be stoning, as we already talked about. That is seen in Leviticus chapter 20 with these words. The man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. However, in this case, the husband suspects that the woman has done exactly what is presented then, verse 14, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself. The ruach kinah, or spirit of jealousy, has come upon the husband. This noun, kinah, is introduced here into the Bible. It refers to jealousy or being zealous concerning a matter. It can be applied to man or to God. It will be seen in this chapter seven times, and the next time it will be used is after this chapter in Numbers chapter 25, where the Lord says this, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, has turned away my wrath from the sons of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not destroy the sons of Israel in my jealousy. The Lord was jealous for the sake of his holy name, and Phineas defended the Lord's honor with the same zealous attitude. Here the man has a burning jealousy, and it is well-founded. However, jealousy can also be unfounded. Verse 14 continues, Or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, the ruach kina, or spirit of jealousy, is an inward feeling which can either be true or it can be false. It is something that wells up in a person, rightly or wrongly, and it can become a huge problem if not resolved. There is a question as to why this only pertains to a woman and not to a man. Several reasons become obvious when the matter is thought through, though, one of which is as much a protection for the woman as it is for the man. The first and most obvious reason is that the idea of Israel is one of purity. The Lord spoke to the men concerning about divorcing their wives all the way back in the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. He gives his reason for retaining the marriage. He says these words, But did he not make them one, having a remnant of the Spirit? And why one? He seeks godly offspring. Therefore, take heed to your spirit, and let none deal treacherously with the wife of his youth. The sacredness of marriage is a given, even from the creation of man. But the sacredness of offspring becomes the focus of attention from that point on as well. The two lines mentioned in Genesis 6 speak of this, the sons of God and the sons of men. Some people say that's speaking of angels and humans. It's not. It's speaking of the godly line and the ungodly line. The Lord expected the purity of Israel in particular as they led to the coming Messiah. The name and family of the male included the transfer of his land and his property. It was an honor to be bestowed upon a legitimate son. It would disgrace that and dishonor the man for a woman to bear another man's child. 
Another reason this applied to women and not to men is because it is the man who could severely mistreat the woman if he suspected her of infidelity. He could physically harm her or treat her no longer as a wife to be respected, but as a slave to his animal desires. This is something a woman could not do to a man. And so despite the law being directed at the woman, it was still a safeguard and protection for her. If no harm came to her from this right, then she'd be vindicated. If harm did come, she would be proven a faithless wife. Either way, it is an appropriate measure as given by the Lord. And so, if a ruach kina arises in him, verse 15, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. The woman is herein as protected as she is under suspicion. The priest is the judge, and it is his obligation to judge rightly according to the law. Verse 15 continues, He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. There are several reasons why an offering is required to be brought forth. First, the Israelites were told to not come before the Lord rekham, or empty-handed. At the Exodus, the people were brought out by the Lord. And when this occurred, their hands were filled with the plunder of Egypt. And so he instructed them in essence that just as I brought you out of Egypt with hands which were not empty, so you shall come before me with hands that are not empty. To do so would be a vain or an empty thing. And so each appearance before the Lord required an offering. The type of offering for this instance is specifically stated as one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal, meaning one omer. The omer comes from the word amar, signifying a sheaf. However, it is used figuratively to mean to chastise, as if piling on blows. The omer is of seorah, or barley. Barley is specified for a couple reasons as well. First, it is the food of poor people, being worth about half as much as wheat. Because of its low quality, it was used for feeding animals. Thus, it signifies the poor state of the relationship between the husband and the wife, as well as the low state, either deserved or undeserved, of the wife because of the expected guilt. Secondly, barley is known as the crop of hairy ears because of its hairy appearance. The root of it is se'ar, or hair. Hair in the Bible indicates an awareness of things. The goat, for example, is used in Leviticus for the sin offering, and it is known as sa'ir. It's a hairy goat, and it's an awareness of sin. We have an awareness of sin in the hairy goat sin offering. So you can hear the similarity. Say orah, sa'ir, and then say ar. The three are all connected. The roots all come back to the idea of awareness. These and other examples show that the offering signifies an awareness exists, rightly or wrongly, concerning the matter. The barley, then, is a petition to bring this awareness out fully by disclosing the truth of the matter. Verse 15 continues, He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it. As we saw in Leviticus, and I know all of you remember this perfectly, and so I'm not going to re-explain all of it here, the flower pictures Christ. Oil symbolizes the presence of the Spirit, and frankincense pictures works. Each of these was offered in a normal grain offering, but only the flower is offered here. This is an offering of jealousy. In this, it reveals that God finds sin offensive and detestable. When sin is present, or even suspected, as is the case with the husband's jealousy, the spirit is quenched and our works are unacceptable. Therefore, no oil or frankincense is added. Verse 15 continues, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. 
The presence of Christ, signified by the meal offering, indicates that he will be the judge of the matter which is to be brought forth. Verse 16, And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The words here are masculine, and so this is probably not speaking of the woman at all. It's probably referring only to the offering and not to the woman. However, it could be that the feminine is put for the masculine. If it is only the offering, it should read, The priest therefore shall offer it, meaning the offering, not bringing the woman near, and set it before the Lord. Who is unfaithful in going astray? Who has turned away her heart? Who has been unfaithful day unto day? But who is committed to make a new start? The Lord reads the minds and tests the heart. He looks for those who will turn to him again. And so who is willing to make a new start? Are there any faithful among the sons of men? Lord, we have been unfaithful, it's true. We have not been faithful in our heart. But we are now turning back to you. We are willing to turn and make a new start. Our second thought today is bitter water that brings a curse. It's verses 17 through 22. Verse 17, the priest shall take holy water. The holy water, a term used nowhere else, was surely taken from the bronze laver. It was intended for sacred uses. The symbolism of the laver, which was made from the mirrors of the women, is found in Exodus chapter 30. It must be remembered to understand its significance. The laver pictures Christ. He is the word of God, and from him issues the word of God. Both are discerners of hidden things. Christ actively discerns what is hidden in man, whereas the Bible is what passively allows man to see what is hidden in himself. The composition of the labor being mirrors points to Christ's ability to discern and judge the very thoughts and intents of the hidden heart of man, as he is the word of God, and the water of the word proceeds from him, then it is a picture of the word itself. Right here is what we're looking at, the Holy Bible. Verse 17 continues, in an earthen vessel. The cheres, or earthen vessel, is used to symbolize people, while the Lord is the potter. In this case, it signifies the humanity of Christ. The lesson is that the holy is not to be mixed with the profane, and we, as earthen jars, are to be filled with that which is holy. After that, we are to keep ourselves from being mixed with that which is profane. The right here is to see if what the woman is accused of is true. Has she kept herself pure? Verse 17 continues, And take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it in the water. Here is a new word in the Bible, karka, or floor. The priest is to go into the tabernacle and take some of the afar, or dust, from the floor and put it into the water. Dust signifies that which is poor and lowly and deserving of a curse. Man was formed from the dust being brought forth to honor. But because of sin, his curse was that to the dust he is destined to return. The serpent was cursed with the notion that he would eat dust all the days of his life. It is a fitting description, then, of the accusation against her, that of being seduced by the serpent once again. Coming from the floor of the Mishkan, or tabernacle, it would be considered holy. Just as Moses was told to take off his shoes in the presence of the Lord, so was this ground hallowed by the presence of the Lord. You can mentally picture it, the holy curse is being put into the word of God, which is contained in the earthen vessel, which is Christ's humanity. The water itself is the means of bringing about the divine curse, or the divine blessing of exoneration. Verse 18, Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord. It is now that the woman is brought to stand before the Lord. 
This means that she was to be brought within the confines of the sanctuary and caused to stand at the brazen altar in the courtyard of the sanctuary and facing the tabernacle where the ark rested. Verse 18 continues, uncover the woman's head. The Hebrew word para gives the sense of loosening or unrestraining and thus to expose. If her head was covered, the hair was to be uncovered. If her hair was tied up, it was to be loosened and fall naturally. As said earlier, hair signifies awareness. The wife's hair is a, as a covering is a sign of respect for her husband. This is alluded to by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. The hair itself is a symbol of authority of the man over the woman. This symbol is now unrestrained, just as she is believed to have been unrestrained to determine if she allowed her hair to be loosed in the bed of another man. Her hair, the symbol of her awareness, is now loosed before the Lord. Verse 18 continues, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. The grain offering that has been brought before the Lord is now placed in her hands. It is an offering of jealousy of the husband, and she is now holding it out as an offering of her innocence, if she is truly innocent. Verse 18 continues, and the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. While the woman holds the grain offering of jealousy, the priest holds the bitter water, making his pronouncement over both. Verse 19, and the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man is lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. Here stated is the obvious claim of the woman. To this point, she's been accused by her husband and she has denied her unfaithfulness. The priest is, therefore, giving her the benefit of the doubt by stating that, if innocent, she will be free from the harm that the bitter water would otherwise cause. The words are an imperative form as a seal of assurance that if she is innocent, no harm will come upon her. However, verse 20, but if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some man other than your husband is lain with you... The same thought is expressed in three different but synonymous ways. If you have gone astray, if you have defiled yourself, and if some man other than your husband is lain with you. There can be no evading what is said, and there can be no later excuse that she had misunderstood the intent of the priest's words. In this verse is the last use of the noun shekel bet or intercourse in the Bible. We can say goodbye to that. The intent is as clear as the priest could make it. Verse 21, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman. This clause is parenthetical. It is inserted in order to show that the curse he speaks is a result of the offending action she has committed. The curse itself is, verse 21 continues, the Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people. The words here indicate the horrific nature of what will result. To be made a curse means that when people wanted to say the worst possible thing to another, they would use her as an example. I hope that what happened to adulterous Annie is what happens to you. To make someone an oath is to say that people would swear your name as a means of seeking exoneration. I swear that I didn't do this. If I'm lying, may I become like adulterous Annie. This is because the thing that happened to Annie was of the Lord, and it was terrible. Verse 21 continues, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. In essence, to use adulterous Annie's name would imply swearing before the Lord because it was the Lord who brought about her judgment. It was he who made her yarek, or thigh, to nafal, or drop. To fall here signifies to go to ruin. 
The yarek, though literally meaning thigh, is used euphemistically of speaking of her private parts. It is used this way from time to time, such as in Genesis 24, verse 2, and Genesis 46, verse 26. The very part of her that she used in unfaithfulness in order to bear would be that which was affected by the same act of infidelity. The second effect would be that her beten, or womb, would sava, or swell. It is a new word which is only seen in this chapter. The idea here is that the act she committed, which when done rightly with her husband, would result in a baby in her life-giving womb, causing it to swell as intended. However, and instead, the curse would cause a similar appearance in a swollen, dead womb. The act of unfaithfulness would lead to her physical deformity, and that physical affliction would lead to her becoming the curse and the oath among her people. With the name of the Lord so invoked, the priest now pronounces the curse again to settle the matter. Verse 22, and may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. These words end the oath and the curse, which began in verse 19. It is to be noted that no variation of the penalty is authorized. In other words, the priest can't make up a different penalty like, may your eye fall out of its socket. The bitter water's effect was targeted, and thus the oath which precedes the effect is also specific. Verse 22 continues, then the woman shall say, amen, so be it. amen, amen, And shall say the woman, amen, amen. It is the first use of the word in the Bible, and due to its repetition, it comes as an emphasis. When names or words are repeated in the Bible, this is what it means. The word alone signifies truly, or so be it. In repeating it, the thought is, may it certainly be so. Like an unfaithful wife, so have we been to you. Our thoughts have been on that which is not right, but you have remained faithful and true. You have been steadfast through day and through night. Return to us the fount of life once again, may it be so. Let us drink of the pure water of life. And we will follow you wherever you go. We will be as a faithful bride and a loving wife. Lord, may the churches that are called by your name be faithful to the call which at first went out. Take away our guilt and hide away our shame, and we will be faithful, leaving no future reason to doubt. Our third thought today, establishing guilt or innocence. It's verses 23 through 31. Verse 23, then the priest shall write these curses in a book and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. The term book here, as we think of a book today, is a stretch of the intent. The meaning is that the words were written out, be it on a scroll or on a piece of wood or even a piece of parchment. And then they were completely wiped out from the face of the document and transferred to the bitter water. Verse 24, and he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter. This is actually looking forward to verse 26. In this, if she were innocent, the very words which had been wiped out would come to produce a similar nothingness in her. But if she were guilty, the substance and formula of the words which were formed by the ink would bear witness against her and produce the effect that they proclaimed when in written form. However, before she actually drinks the water, the offering must be made. Verse 25, then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. In this, the priest receives the grain offering from the woman and waves it before the Lord. The word is nuf, and it signifies to move back and forth. 
By making a waving motion, the offering would thus be before or in the face of the Lord. It was an acknowledgement of his omnipresence. The offering itself comes after the oath, but before the drinking of the bitter water. If she is innocent, then her offering would be accepted and the water would have no effect on her. If she were guilty, her offering would be as a profane person offering to the Lord, and it would become evident in the effects of the bitter water. Verse 26, And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar. The memorial portion of meal offerings was defined in Leviticus. In this case, it is a memorial for either good or for evil, depending on the truth of the matter. This handful is burned up to the Lord for his acceptance or rejection. Verse 26 continues, And afterward make the woman drink the water. One thing is to be remembered here. To this point, the woman has had numerous chances to admit her guilt and ask for mercy. It has been put forward to her again and again. Now there is only the prospect of being proven true and faithful or false and faithless. Verse 27, when he has made her drink the water, then it shall be if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. Although the rite is now completed for a person standing there, the words here are as much of a warning to the unfaithful woman of Israel as the words leading up to the drinking of the bitter water itself. The surety of the words show that the right will have its intended effect and that guilt could not be hidden. Therefore, anyone who heard these words in advance of the right would have to consider them. The outcome of the right for guilt is stated absolutely. If she is guilty, what is said thus far is certain to come about. In this verse is the last use of sava or swell in the Bible. It arrived in verse 21 and it is now biblical history. Verse 28. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. The words here confirm that the punishment of the guilty woman was upon her reproductive parts. Though it says thigh, it is a euphemistic expression referring to her private parts. The bitter water would cause her reproductive innards to rot and to swell. However, if she were not guilty, her ability to bear children would remain unaffected by the mixture. The ability to bear children is biblically a sign of divine favor. Thus, the Lord himself will have vindicated her. Verse 29, this is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. These words go back and assume that there is no proof of adultery on the part of the woman, but that she has, in fact, been unfaithful. It is the determination of the Lord that there would be a remedy for such unfaithfulness and that he would be the one to punish that which the law was unable to bring about. Both the adulterer and the adulteress were to be stoned for their act. This is what the law demanded. But the people under the law can only punish what is a known violation. Therefore, the Lord himself would make the unknown evident. Verse 30, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. The words here do not assume guilt like the previous verse. Instead, they acknowledged assumed guilt and then lead to the means by which that assumed guilt becomes actual guilt or exoneration from that guilt. The husband is not to act upon his jealousy, but rather he is to allow the Lord to judge through his mediator, the priest. 
In all such cases, it is the Lord who is ultimately the one who determines the punishment for guilt. In handling it this way, we see the final result of the passage. Verse 31 finishes with these words, Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. If the man personally took action against his wife because of a feeling of jealousy, he would bear guilt for harming her. Or, if he ignored the feeling of jealousy and allowed the iniquity to continue, he would be guilty of tolerating her sin. However, by deferring to the Lord to make the determination and bringing about the consequences of the woman's guilt, he would be free from iniquity, and only she would bear the guilt. Our fourth thought today, the holy polygraph and explanation. Has anybody figured it out? Come up and finish the sermon. You can't. In the end, what we are seeing here is a picture of what happens when the church is unfaithful to the Lord. He is the head of the church, and the people are as his betrothed spouse. If we have gone out and been unfaithful to him, we are reckoned as adulterers. That's all the way through the Bible. An unfaithful wife is a wife which arouses jealousy, and the Lord is a jealous God. Just as he said of himself in Exodus 34, verse 14, with these words, The Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. The elements of the rite all point to Christ. The husband, the omer of barley, signifying the poor state in which he came about and his awareness of our state before God. The holy water, his word, the earthen vessel, his humanity, the dust of the floor, meaning the curse that he took upon himself. The words of law, meaning the judgment upon sin. The priest, signifying him as mediator, the altar, which is his sacrifice, and so on. All of these stand as a witness, either of our guilt or our innocence. There is one true church, but there are churches, and then there are churches. The Lord is jealous for his church, and therefore there must be judgment upon it if there is unfaithfulness to him. All of the symbolism here points to judgment upon the church, which is unfaithful to him. Just as he is said to remove his lampstand from an unfaithful church in Revelation 2 verse 5, so that it is no longer a true church, so he also removes the ability of that church to bear children. It is, as we can say, a woman with a dead womb. One continuous theme of the Bible is the begetting of legitimate sons and daughters. For a church to commit adultery with the world, or even through an abuse of Scripture, it means that illegitimate children are the result. And so, in a spiritual sense, the woman who drinks the bitter water and whose thigh rots and her belly swells pictures that church. She cannot bear legitimate children nor even could Israel while still under the law. The only way that a legitimate child can be born is through a legitimate union. When that occurs in Christ, then spiritually legitimate children come about. This is why the woman's grain offering was waved and presented before she drank the bitter water. She has claimed that she has been faithful and that her offering is acceptable. However, only the Lord can determine that. Once that was accomplished, only then did she drink the bitter water. If you're not getting what's being relayed, as a real example to consider, we can look at the Jehovah's Witnesses. They are supposedly a faithful wife to the Lord, but there is a suspicion of jealousy. And so she is presented as an unfaithful wife who continues to claim having been faithful. Ask any Jehovah's Witness if this is the case, and they will claim that they are the epitome of faithfulness. And yet... They have played the harlot and been completely unfaithful in their doctrine. How do I know? Because I started out in the Jehovah's Witnesses. Man, I didn't know anything. They opened their Bible. I never saw that in the church I grew up in. So I thought I'll go there. 
Well, after three months, I had read the Bible each week for three months. What's that? 12 times. So in 12 times, I had read the Bible and I said, this, what they're saying doesn't match this at all. It doesn't match this word at all. Right? So I left there. They will be given the bitter water, but before they do, they will present their offering. Is their offering Christ? No. And so when they are given the bitter water, they will be shown as an unfaithful wife. They will be unable to conceive children. And in fact, they have borne none. The same test will be given to all. The standard, I hate to tell you folks, the standard is Christ. The barley, the water, the earthen vessel, the words of law, all of it, all of it points to the man, Jesus, who is either the bringer of our curse or our exoneration from the curse. There is one standard. The priest could not make up another punishment as he chose. The punishment for being a faithless wife is bearing no children because the place where children issue from has been used for unfaithful purposes. Christ is the head of man just as the head of woman is man. The hair of the wife will be loosed before the Lord and there will be an intimate awareness of the wife at that time. That hair may be shorter or longer, curly or straight, brown, black, red, or gray, but it will be revealed. If the doctrine isn't great, but the wife has been faithful to Christ, that will be revealed. If the doctrine is pure, that will be revealed. But if there has been an unfaithfulness to Christ, that will be revealed as well. No children will come from that source. The bitter water's effect will be profound when none come forth as legitimate children. The obvious question is, from where do you receive your instruction? The Lord has established his church, and he expects it to bear legitimate sons and daughters. But this cannot be when we participate in that which is unclean. Will the wife remain faithful and bear sons and daughters for the Lord? Or will she be unfaithful and be unable to conceive? A man of Israel could have more than one wife. There are many churches and even entire denominations which refuse to admit their adultery. They will be tested and they will be proven false. Unfortunately, those who have dwelt within the womb of such an adulterous woman will never be conceived as children of God. The earthly wife of Israel had expectations levied upon her, which translate into spiritual expectations within the church. We must take heed to ourselves and to our doctrine and ensure that what we accept is founded in the truth and only in the truth of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. In that alone. In the end, it is all about what God has done and is doing through him. And so we need to be sure that the gospel we accept is the gospel founded on Christ. A different gospel is no gospel at all. And what is that saving message which is rejected by so many unfaithful women? Instead of going after another, we need to come to Christ. Let me explain it to you. And the Bible says that all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Some churches do not teach sin in any way, shape, or form. Some churches teach that there is no hell, right? You go to the Unitarian Church, they don't even teach that there's a hell. Well, guess what? That's the stupidest thing on the planet to go to a Unitarian Church. Why would you bother? If you're not going to hell, you can do whatever you want because there's no hell. Everybody gets a ticket to heaven. The mistakes in this life are just ignored by God. We have all kinds of doctrines like these all over the world. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is a created being. Well, the law of contingency itself, one of the 12 first principles, says that that's impossible. If you know the 12 first principles, you will have really sound theology probably in the rest of your understanding of the nature of God. The principle of contingency says that only a uncreated being 
A non-contingent being can create anything. A contingent being, which we all are, this is contingent, something created it, and it is contingent for its continued existence on God. This thing cannot create anything. I cannot create anything. Only God can take matter from nothing. It's called creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo, uh, nihil fit, out of nothing. God made everything, okay? We need to understand these things because once you get into these different doctrines, the Mormons teach that... uh, Jesus was a man and he became a God. Once again, it's impossible. There can only be one necessary being. There can't be more than one God. All of these things are found in logic. We don't need the Bible to understand that. But we do need the Bible to understand our relationship with that God. Is that we have sinned. That's the doctrine of original sin. Adam was created. He rejected God. Even though he did it innocently, he disobeyed his order. And sin entered the world at that moment. That was called the fall of man. And what happened? They had to go out of the Garden of Eden. They were expelled from there because of that. It says, the man has become like one of us, knowing good from evil. And God couldn't allow that because in the garden is the tree of life. You got the tree of life and you've got somebody that knows evil and can do evil. He would become infinitely bad. He would just go from worse to worse. Think of what happened before the flood. People lived in 969 years old, Methuselah, Right. Look at how bad it got. In 1,656 years on earth, it was so wicked that God saved one man, his wife, and their sons and wives. Eight people in all were saved through the flood. Imagine how wicked the world was in that short amount of time. In the year 1,656, Anno Mundi, from the creation of the world, God destroyed everything. And here we sit wondering, is our doctrine pure or not? I'm going to tell you, like I did earlier today, what the doctrine of Jesus Christ is. But before I do that, I want you to to think of two examples from the Old Testament. First is David and Bathsheba. Remember David, he was the king of Israel. A man after God's own heart, 400 years after he died, the Lord said, yet for the sake of my servant David, I will protect Jerusalem. He loved David, but David violated God's standard. He took a wife from a man, and he had her, and then he had the man killed and took her as his own wife. But believe it or not, that person, Bathsheba, ended up being in the line of Jesus Christ. So there's something about forgiveness in the Bible. David said in the Psalms, and is quoted by Paul in the New Testament, Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, how can that be? How can that be? The law says you have violated the law. You must be punished. How could the Lord not impute iniquity to King David? Because his heart was right with God. And on the day of atonement, the Lord covered over his sins. He looks on the heart. The shedding of the blood of bulls and goats cannot do anything. And the second example I'd like to give you is Joseph and Mary. He spoke of Mary today. Now think of it. Joseph suspected that she had slept with another man, didn't he? He could have taken her down to the temple and had this rite performed on her, and she would have been vindicated, right? But he didn't. He was a good guy, and he said he'll put her away secretly. But this rite applied in that circumstance because she was his betrothed. She was as his wife. They just had not yet had the union. So think of what the Lord is showing us in these types and examples of his grace and his mercy and his infinite wisdom at the same time. And then understand what I read you before. I want to read you again. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
I got to go to the Bible because my brain doesn't work so well, and I want to make sure I don't misquote these. Before I do that, I'm going to take you to Galatians chapter 1, I'm going to read you verses 6 through 8, so you understand when I talk about apostate churches, I'm not trying to be a finger pointer, I'm just upholding what God says in his word. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who troubled you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But if we, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than that which we have preached to you, let him be accursed. That's the penalty right there. Just like this woman would be accursed. All right. So how do we know what the true gospel is? It's so simple. 1 Corinthians 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which you are also saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Christ died, was buried, and rose again according to scripture. That's the gospel. That is the message which can save you. And here's how you appropriate that from Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and when he says Lord, he uses the word kurios, which can mean all kinds of things in the New Testament, but specifically the context is Jehovah of the Old Testament. He has come, he is incarnate, and this is who you are calling on, the Lord Jehovah, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, he came out of the infinite realm. He united with human flesh. He lived under the law, which he gave to Israel perfectly. He was born without sin. He lived without sin. He gave his life up for our sin. And he went into the grave. And he came out of the grave. Why? Because it was impossible that death could hold him, Peter says in the book of Acts. It was impossible that death could hold him. Why? Because the sin that he took to the grave wasn't his. It was ours. He took away our sin, and he came out of the grave to prove that he had no sin of his own. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Call on Jesus Christ and be reconciled to God through his shed blood. Our closing verse comes from 2 Corinthians 6. It's verses 17 and 18. And just think of what we just went through with good churches and bad churches. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Sonship of the creator of all things. What a bargain. What an absolute bargain. Next week is Numbers 6, 1 through 27. That wild and long hair, what a sight. It's entitled The Vow of the Nazarite. That'll be our 11th number sermon. Great stuff there, the Nazarite vow. Have you all read that passage before, wondered what it's about? Well, we'll see it. And then after that, we'll have a very, very short, small number of uh, verses. I think it's three, maybe four, which is the Burkat Koanim, the high priestly blessing. That'll be two weeks from now. What a wonderful passage that is. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Lord, I got it wrong. I knew it. Here, let me read it to you. That way, I don't want to misquote something so precious, and then we'll go on. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. I got it right. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Wonderful stuff. That's coming two sermons away. Great stuff. I'll tell you this. As I say, each week, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there 
carefully leading you to the land of promise. So follow him and trust him and he'll do marvelous things for you and through you, okay? Isn't it wonderful to have Darlene back? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. All these tourists, are, I mean, these snowbirds are going to start coming back. We, Dad will be back soon. The bridges will be back soon. Oh, my goodness. Great. Okay. Got a short poem for it. What's that? Traffic. traffic. More traffic. Well, we don't want that, but our poem today is called The Holy Polygraph. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, These words to them you shall tell. If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, a situation quite grim, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, who has defiled herself, as she ought not, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him, and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, but has remained faithful in her married life, then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her. So to you I submit one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He should put no oil on it, nor put frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering. For bringing iniquity to remembrance is what is to be done with this thing. And the priest shall bring her near according to this word and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. This part is a must. And then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head, so shall it be, and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse, so we are to understand. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, if no man is lame with you, something so perverse, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself and some other man than your husband is lame with you, such as should not be, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse. And he shall say to the woman, So to her he shall tell, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach, as to you I now submit, and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Then the priest shall these curses in a book write, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water, the words that will determine her plight. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse, and the water that brings the curse shall enter her to become bitter according to this written verse. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar so we are to understand. Then the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, so he shall do burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water, as I am instructing you. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself, like a bird she did flitter, and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, that the water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, and her thigh will rot a fate grim and glum, and the woman will cause a curse among her people become. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean, then she shall be free and may conceive children. A happy family will be seen. 
This is the law of jealousy. When a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself in a faithless life, or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife, then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt for sure. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it and to our lives daily it apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the wonderful passage which tells us of our responsibilities before you. You ask us to be faithful, and in faithfulness we will bear children to you. If we preach the right doctrine, if we hold to what is sound, then our churches will be filled with people who are called sons and daughters of you. And if we stray, and if we teach that which is false, and we keep people from salvation, that's our own fault for not adhering to your word, which is so wonderful, so faithfully telling us of the glory which was manifest in the person of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who came to walk among us and show us the path to eternal glory. We thank you for that, and we will follow you. Wherever you go, Lord Jesus, we will pursue you with reckless abandon. If you run, we'll run to catch up, and if you slow down, we'll be on your heels. We love you. We praise you. We glorify you for who you are and for what you've done for us. And we do so in your beautiful and exalted name, Jesus. Amen.